0: Good morning everybody. Hear me all right? This is my first time being up on this stage to share the message with you, and I feel like I'm fifty feet tall. When I'm back on the drums, like it's you know, you can't see quite as well, but I really it's a little overwhelming. Anyway, my name is Brian Marcioni and I'm honored and excited to share God's word with you today, as I as I always am. Uh, Pastor Sean and his family, well, most of his family are, are down in Texas. They're going to be there for a little bit. And uh, Pastor Brendan is there as well, so I'm like the fourth or fifth string uh, to come up here this morning and, and share with you, uh, but I'm, I'm excited to do it. And we're, we're in this series, uh, the book of James, and we're getting pretty deep into it now. We're going to be in chapter five today. And today, we are going to talk about suffering. And I find that whenever we talk about suffering and trials, and especially when we experience suffering and trials, the question we tend to focus on is why. Why is there so much suffering in the world? Why am I suffering this trial right now? Why God? And I've read many books, uh, much ink has been spilled on this topic. I've taken a whole course on on evil and suffering. And these books, the, the the class I've taken, the conversations I have with brothers and sisters in the midst of trials, often focus on this why question. But as we read through the Scriptures... It's, it's interesting to note that we don't really get a lot of information on the why of suffering. Uh, there isn't a lot of time spent explaining the why of suffering in Scriptures. Uh, when we do look into it, we typically wind up discussing the fallen nature of our world and of humanity, uh, due to sin, and we talk about the mysteriousness and the inscrutability of God's will and the limits of our own understanding and our own knowledge. And this is a a rich topic that would be great to talk about at greater depth, and I'm sure it's of great interest to all of us. But the text today in James is another one of those texts that doesn't really deal with the why of suffering. But when it comes to the how of suffering, the Bible has a lot more to say. How should we suffer? In other words, in in what manner are we called to suffer? And moreover, when we do suffer, what gives us the power and the strength to endure it? How is that possible? How do we endure suffering? And our text today is one such text. And while it has a very specific type of suffering in mind here, a specific trial, we'll see that it actually answers the how question in a way that's powerful for all of life's trials. So, if you would, turn with me to James chapter 5. Towards the end of your Bibles, James chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 7, and we'll read through verse 11. James 5, 7 through 11. will also be up on the screen. And listen carefully with me to what God's Word says. Be patient, then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So, if we want to understand what James is saying here, like like any passage in Scripture, it's wise to understand the broader context of these verses. And immediately preceding our text today is a a stern warning to rich oppressors in James 5, 1 through 6. And as we might expect by now, as we've read through James, James doesn't, doesn't hold back any punches here. Right? He, he has very, very strong and stern warnings for these rich oppressors. It's very important to note that James isn't talking about wealthy people in general. He clearly has in mind those who exploit others and abuse their wealth. They've hoarded their wealth, the text says. They've failed to pay their workers. They've lived in self-indulgence and luxury. These wealthy people, they aren't generous they don't treat others fairly. Fairly, they, they, they don't honor God with their finances. He has in mind just avarice and, and rapacious greed. And these are oppressive people who gain from others' loss. And so when we start our text today, you can see right away it's a transition point. He's addressing a different crowd, a different group of people. Because he starts, he says, be patient then, brothers and sisters. He's now talking to believers and likely victims of the rich oppressors he just talked about. And the message here, it's transparently clear. In the face of suffering, be patient and endure it without grumbling against one another. He leads this way in verse 7, be patient. He repeats it in verse 8, be patient. And he adds, stand firm. This is translating literally, strengthen your hearts. And then in verse 9, there's the only only negative command, don't grumble against one another. And at, at first blush, this might seem a little out of place, but I think any of us who have gone through hardship know that we have a tendency to take our pain and suffering out on those who are closest to us. I'm slighted at work, I'm humiliated, I'm embarrassed, something unfair happens to me. How is my attitude when I come home? Do I have more grace for my family and kids? Am I more honoring of my wife? Or do the smallest things start to start to set me off? And I confess, and I, I expect many of you would too, it's not always the case. Somebody hurts me or offends me, and I can too easily take that anger and hurt out on those closest to me. And James knows this. And so his warning is clear. Don't quarrel among yourselves when you suffer. He even reinforces this by noting that just because believers might be suffering, they too are going to be judged. Unless we get too carried away thinking about the judgment due the oppressor, he calls us to examine our own hearts, our own behavior as well. Being a victim of oppression and suffering is no license to oppress or cause suffering in others. Let me say that again. Being a victim of oppression is no license to oppress others. So be patient in suffering. Don't be mean to one another when you suffer. All set? Amen? Like, sh- Should we pray? Like, There's the message. That's what he's saying, right? But piece of cake. But there's actually there's so much more in this text. There's a deeper message in here. Because James isn't just giving us advice on right living. In a sense, he's doing that, but it's not merely that. he is also showing us the power behind it. This short little text offers the how to persevere through suffering, and not just suffering from rich oppressors, but suffering in general. So yes, he tells us to be patient and persevere through trials, but how? Well, one help he gives us is he offers us some inspiration. He offers inspiration by pointing to some examples. He knows how the farmer patiently waits for the, yield, the land to yield its crop in verse 7. He points out the prophets who spoke in the name of God in verse 10. And he makes an example of Job. You may know the Old Testament book of Job recounts the story of this man, Job, who, who suffers much. Everything is taken away from him. Yet he stays faithful to God. He won't curse God. And at the end of the book, God restores Job's fortunes. And James's readers would have been familiar with this story. So inspiration is great, but there's something even deeper. And to see this, uh, to see how James expects us to be patient, how he expects us to persevere, we need to think more on suffering in general. And ask the question, what makes suffering unbearable? What makes it unbearable? When is it that we cannot bear with it any longer and we just lose the capacity to patiently endure? When is it unbearable? I would propose that there are two things that make suffering this way, such that we can't patiently endure. And the first of these is expectations. What are your expectations in life? And let me steal an illustration I heard from another sermon uh, to to illustrate this point. But imagine you're you're picking out a hotel room for for a night stay somewhere, and you you book a hotel, a a four-star hotel, and it's a big expense. It's $500 a night, so so it's a lot of money, but all the reviews just suggest it's going to be worth it. This is going to be awesome. It's billed as a luxury hotel. But when you get there, it's a Motel 6 or, or a Red Roof Inn, all right? How do you react? How do you react to that? This place is a dump. This is a dump. This is outrageous. I can't stand for this. I want my money back. You guys should be sued for false advertising. You can't, you can't stand it. You can't bear it. Why? because of your expectations, right? You spent all this money and had it in your mind that you'd be treated to a luxury hotel, but you got something different. Flip the illustration around. You don't have two pennies to rub together, but you need to stay somewhere. And so you search and you find a deal. You find a place that's $20 a night. And it's on some, like, super econo coupon clipper website, right? And the reviews just say it's a dump. It's dirty, it's infested, it's outdated, the staff is rude. But you don't care because you need some place to stay. You just need a roof and a bed. And you arrive at the same Motel 6, the same Red Roof Inn. How do you react? Hey, this isn't so bad, this is, I mean, from the reviews, I was expecting like a rusty tin shack. This is, this is actually okay. It's not going to win any awards, but this is pretty nice. What's different? What's changed? Same experience, different expectations. This was really, really hit home for me uh, 14 years ago or so when my wife and I got married. Because <clears throat> when Catherine and I were engaged... We took, you know, premarital counseling and we read books and did all the things that couples do nowadays before they get married. And to a one, everyone was saying, oh, the first couple years of marriage are just bliss. It is just wonderful. That's the honeymoon. That's the hun- you're going to get married, you're going to go somewhere, and it's just going to launch you into two years of bliss. Like you- It's just wonderful. And then things are going to start to get hard. You're going to, to start to deal with some trial. There'll start to be some conflict. It'll be, it'll be tougher after those two years. Well, as it turns out, for Catherine and I, the first two years of our marriage were not bliss. They were extremely challenging. Uh, and most of it, of course, is my fault. Because um, I was living alone. I hadn't had a roommate in like eight years since college, and then suddenly, like overnight... I'm now living with a woman, right, in, in, in my, and like, just, I didn't know, you know, I was, fried my circuits, and my own baggage and issues or whatever, it was challenging for so It was so challenging, but you know what made it more challenging, almost unbearable, is the expectation, and I'm saying to myself, this is the bliss, <laughs> this is like the awesome good part, and like we're dying, we can't even like talk to each other. What, you know, what's after this? What's it like when it becomes hard, right? It crushed me. The expectation I had crushed me. And so if you become a Christian and you think now your life is going to be all blessings and roses and blessings as you would define them, by the way, and your troubles are just going to melt away, what is going to happen to you when you encounter suffering and trials? You can't take it. It's not fair. I I thought God loved me. Why? Why are you doing this? This isn't right. Why am I suffering? How could God let this happen? You're crushed. You're you're disillusioned, exasperated, outraged. You can't patiently endure them because of your expectations. Now, if you become a Christian and you have a moderate expectation, if you know the Scriptures well, you see that it's, it's all over the Bible that there's going to be suffering in this life. I mean, Jesus is crystal clear about it. In this world, you will have trouble, John 16, If you follow me, Mark 10, 29 through 31, if you follow me, you will have persecutions. Blessings, yes, but also persecutions. Matthew 5, 11 through 12, Jesus says we're blessed If people insult, persecute us, and say evil against us, no, he doesn't say that. He says we're blessed when people insult and persecute us. It's an expectation. Suffering and trials are assumed in almost every book of the New Testament. And it's assumed in our text today. James just assumes it. Why else would James talk about being patient in suffering if there was no suffering? If there was no trial, right? And so with this expectation, when suffering comes, it isn't exasperating. Yes, it still hurts. Yes, we can still weep and mourn. But it isn't exasperating. It isn't like such a surprise. We live in a fallen world. It's full of broken people just like you and me who hurt other people. There's death and disease and carelessness and cruelty and greed and indifference. That's a part of the world we live in. Why would we expect a problem-free life? We don't have to be surprised or taken off guard when this happens, if our expectations are in line with what we're shown in the Scriptures. And this is really the first implicit answer to the how of suffering, how we endure suffering patiently. We set the right expectations. Should we expect blessings and miracles and healings and relief and joy and all the rest? Absolutely, amen, right? But there's also going to be suffering. There's going to be times where things we just don't understand it. It doesn't make sense. It hurts. This prayer isn't being answered in the way I thought it would be in the time that I thought it would be. But there's something even more powerful, even more explicit in James' message beyond just setting right expectations, beyond just inspiration. And we get to it by discussing the second thing that makes suffering unbearable. The second thing, and we really have to park here and focus on this. The second thing that makes suffering unbearable is a loss of hope. There's a quote I read once. That said, man can live for about 40 days without food, about three days without water, about eight minutes without air, but not for one second without hope. Why does that ring true? It's because life is challenging. It's challenging, and if we have no hope, we could never make it. Even in really simple things that some of us might take for granted... Uh, like our next meal, we need hope. I mean, right now, I'm a little hungry, right? I feel it's kind of things are starting to percolate, right? I'm getting hungry. And I can endure that patiently, the hunger I feel, without falling apart because I have hope that I'm going to eat again soon, right? It's true. But how would that be different If, if I didn't know when or where my next meal was coming from? How would that hunger strike me? If I was on a raft in the middle of the Pacific Ocean by myself, how, how would I bear the suffering of that slow starvation that I feel taking over my body? If it's anything, it's going to be some faint hope that I'll catch a fish or be found and rescued. And it's when we lose hope that suffering becomes unbearable and we cannot endure it. This will never end. It's always going to be like this. Things are only going to get worse. I can't bear with this any longer. There is no hope. And for most of us, this loss of hope probably looks like the, the opposite of James' exhortation in the text today. We lose our patience, so we lash out. We'll, we'll complain, we'll grumble. We'll, we'll mistreat others. will grow bitter or angry towards God or other people. We'll seek vengeance against those who've hurt us. It's not patient endurance. And in the extreme, tragically, people can literally give up with a loss of hope and take their own lives or develop just debilitating depression. Yeah, I read an article recently, a heartbreaking article, about children of refugee families who develop what doctors call resignation syndrome. And what happens is these children are in a horrible circumstance of violence or oppression or whatever it is, and they go through this traumatic migration to another country to seek refuge. And then they're they're, they're at this country, and they hear that they're gonna be deported and sent back to the situation they escaped. And upon hearing that, they just check out of life. And they're literally unable to move, to eat, to drink, to respond. They enter an almost comatose state of of a waking coma. That is the complete deprivation of hope. That's what it looks like at at the limit, and so they just give up on life. Hope, hear this, hope is what gives us the power to persevere. Hope is what gives us the power to persevere. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul's talking about death and believers who have died. And he says, in so many words, it's okay to mourn and weep but we don't have to mourn and weep like those who have no hope because there's hope for us as believers. There's another life. Hope gives us the power to persevere. Read or listen to any account of a person who's gone through suffering or a trial, and what are you going to hear? What's a common denominator? I just didn't give up hope. We kept hoping for a cure. We hoped for a miracle. I hoped for the impossible. We just kept hoping things would get better. Hope gives us the power to persevere. and This is so important because, I mean, what is the hope that James lays out for us in this text? I mean, where's the ultimate power to be patient in suffering? What is the hope James points to us, points out to us in this text about enduring suffering? Where's that hope? It is the return of Jesus Christ. The return of Jesus Christ, three times in the text. Verse 7, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until when? Until the Lord's coming. Verse 8, be patient and stand firm. Why? Because the Lord's coming is near. Even in the prohibition against grumbling, what's behind it? In verse 9, the judge is standing at the door. In other words, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. Now, let me ask a question that that might sting. When was the last time you longed for Jesus Christ to return? When was the last time you searched for a podcast or read a scripture or read a book that dealt with the return of Christ? When was the last time you or somebody near you prayed for Jesus to come soon? I'm not going to speak for all of us here, but I stand before you convicted by those questions. Until I started to study for this message about a month ago, I don't know if the return of Jesus occupied even 1% of my thought or prayer life, and that's probably being generous. Why is that? I mean, it's, it's like a foundational part of the Christian faith. It's in the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed. It's it's in our statement of faith. like all Orthodox Christianity believes Jesus is coming back. The, The New Testament is littered with this teaching. I spent like 10 minutes with my Bible and some online searching, and I found over 40 different passages in the New Testament, in the Gospels and in the Epistles, where the author points us to Christ's return. And our text today is one of them. James alludes to this three times. How does the Bible end? The last verse of Revelation. What's the closing prayer? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. But we never really talk about it, do we? We don't talk about Jesus coming back. Why? I think one of the reasons is because we're too wrapped up in the here and now. Our hope is too small, or or misplaced, as if salvation and final joy is here on earth, and not waiting for us in heaven with Jesus. We hope we're healed of sickness. We hope for justice against oppressors. We hope for provision. We hope for breakthrough through a long-standing trouble, uh, trial. Uh, None of this is bad. And yes and amen, we absolutely should press into that and hope for these things here on earth. That's not the problem. The problem, what's wrong, is that's where our hope ends. Our ultimate hope doesn't go beyond the ones in this life. Better marriage, better behaving kids, healed of sickness, breakthrough in depression, reconciliation with estranged loved ones, yes and amen. But is that it? What about the end of all sickness, all sickness forever, right? Every tear wiped from our eyes, all justice across all the globe, reunion and reconciliation among all creation, looking into Jesus' eyes face-to-face, tangible, touchable, audible, visible Jesus right before us. we say we love him, we worship him, we want more of you, Jesus, why aren't we desperately longing for the full, visible revelation of that and his coming back? Why don't we long for his return? And we get tastes of it, and it tastes so good. Thank you, Jesus, for showing up in this worship service. Thank you for this prayer, for speaking to me, whatever it is. We get a taste. It's wonderful. How much better is it when he comes back and he's here? And we're taken up with them to heaven forever. The real thing. But we hope as if this life is all there is. And so we, we rail against suffering and we shoot after comfort. Our hope is small, we set the bar too low. I mean, what do you hope for right now? When was the last time you longingly thought about the glory that awaits you when Christ returns? Let me tell you what my hope radar looks like, right? It's like, well, I really hope I get this sermon done on time. I really hope that my kids sleep in this morning so I can sleep a little more. I really hope I do a good job at this design review I have this week at work so I can get a good review. I really hope it doesn't rain when we go to family camp so we can have a good time, right? All good things, all okay, That's peanuts. That's peanuts. That's not Bible-sized hope. Our hope isn't Bible-sized hope. New and perfect bodies with no illness ever. No more tears or suffering. Full joy, the final rest of all our souls striving everything we ever wanted. Hope, that hope, that deep, deep hope gives us the power to persevere. But James doesn't just leave it there. He also gives us assurance for that hope. And we can see why this is important if we read uh, the first verse in chapter 11 of Hebrews. So in, in Hebrews, in chapter 11, the author says this. He says, now faith, faith is being sure of what we hope for. And the translation there is a little misleading, as if faith precludes any doubt. A better way to translate this is that faith is the assurance of what we hope for. Faith is the substance, the basis of our hope, okay? If I go to a restaurant and I'm hoping for a good meal, my faith in that restaurant will determine how assured I am of actually having a good meal. Right? I mean, if I've been there before it, has, it and it always delivers, it always impresses me, all my friends like it, the reviews are great, I just have faith. I'm assured I'm going to have a good meal when I go here. I anticipated that faith is the basis for my hope in that good meal. And in our text today, James not only gives the content of our hope, the content which Jesus' is return, but he supports it with something. What does he support it with? James points to God's character as the basis of our hope three times. Look at the example in verse 7. See how the farmer waits for autumn and spring rains. Now, he's actually making an allusion here uh, to something that would be familiar to most of his readers because every time that phrase, autumn and spring rains, which is literally early and later rains, Every time that phrase occurs in the Old Testament, it's in the context of God's faithfulness to his people. The exact phrase occurs five times in the Old Testament. It's always pointing to how God is faithful. But we don't even need to dig that deep. Where else are we assured of God's character? Verse 11, the story of Job. You see what the Lord finally brought about. Job endured suffering, but God was faithful to him. And a third time, how does the text close? The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So our hope isn't a false one. Our hope, our ultimate great hope of Christ's return is based on the character of God. And God is faithful. He's full of compassion and mercy. Hope gives us the power to persevere, and our hope is in a person. It's in Jesus himself, and he is coming back. And that hope is grounded on the very character of God who is faithful. So as we start to wrap up, I want us to to meditate on Bible-sizing our hope. Let's, Let's meditate on Christ's return, because hope is what gives us the power to persevere. And with that great hope, we can patiently endure trials. And perhaps you've hoped for healing and you haven't received it yet. It's okay to hang on to that hope. Let's continue to pray for it and labor for it. But don't let it stop there. You can rest assured that you will be healed. There's no if, it's a when you can patiently endure because Jesus is coming back to make everything right. Perhaps you're discouraged by suffering in the world, injustice, abuse, corruption. Hang on to hope. Jesus is coming back to make everything right. Does this hope mean that we we quit working to end injustice, that we stop praying for healing or striving to soothe human suffering? Absolutely not. But when you get a hold of the fact that there's something far, far more glorious awaiting you on the other side of this life. You're free to give and do whatever God asks, and you're not crushed when you come into a trial. I mean, the people who have had the greatest impact in this life are the ones who have had their hopes set on the next. Study history, even look around at, at what movements are really exploding, and it's probably full of people whose hope is wrapped up in the next life, ultimately. And so when we get a hold of that, that we're just passing through, Jesus is coming back, we can be free. The world can lose its hold on us. Suffering doesn't have to be unbearable in that way. And we can live out Jesus' own words to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And when we come to trials, which we always do, we patiently persevere. And there's no stopping us. We can just bounce back again and again and again because nothing can take that away. What's going to take that away from us? Nothing. No one. It's based on God. It's based on what Christ did. He's coming back. His faithfulness, not mine, is never going to go away. And it's far more glorious than we could ever even conceive of. He's coming back. Hope is what gives us the power to persevere. And our hope is in a person. It's in Jesus Christ, and he's coming back. And we rest assured on that because our hope is founded on the character of God himself. So, as we conclude, the band can come up, and let me share uh, an illustration here. If you've been to any Christian church for more than a week, you've probably heard the story of, of Horatio Spafford, right? He wrote the famous hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, and it's familiar to a lot of us, but let me summarize it for you in case you haven't heard it, but he, Spafford, lost much of his fortune, he was very successful in real estate, but he lost most of it in the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. And he later lost a son to Scarlet Fever, and then his four daughters were drowned in a shipwreck some years later, and only his wife was spared, and he wrote the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, when he passed over the site of that shipwreck. Uh, on his own journey uh, across seas. And later on in his life, he moved to Jerusalem and he established a philanthropic venture called the American Colony that opened up soup kitchens and orphanages and hospitals, other charitable ventures to all people, regardless of their faith, uh, to bless them and alleviate suffering. And I thought it was fitting to conclude by reading the last two verses of this hymn Uh, One of them I had never read before. It's rarely a part of what we typically sing in in worship services. Uh, But just listen, listen to this, and listen to where this man's hope is. But Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest of my soul. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, even so it is well with my soul. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that um, hope in you gives us power to endure suffering. Father, would you help us to moderate our expectations here to patiently endure trials when they come our way and hold fast to you. May we not give up hope and expectation, Lord God, for healing, for blessing, for joy in this life. But Lord, please don't let it end there. May we not lose sight, God, of the fact that something far more glorious awaits. May we not lose sight of the fact that you are returning. Just as you ascended into heaven, so shall you return. And all those who are in Christ will be caught up with you uh, to enjoy you forever. Uh, So help us, Lord, drive that straight into our hearts. So our hope would be in you and your return, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray.